So please take your Bible and turn now from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So we're, we're continuing our way through the book of Ephesians together. We are in a very practical section in the book of Ephesians. Paul is giving us practical moral instruction for different aspects of life. What it means to, to put off our old self, to put on the new self. Last week we looked at practical moral instruction, gospel transformation applied to honesty. What does it mean to tell the truth, not to lie? Today we're going to be looking at it applied to anger, applied to work. But in coming weeks, as we continue from chapter 4 into chapter 5, we'll see how the gospel affects every aspect of life. We'll look at it for the way we speak, for the way we think about love, for the way we think about sexuality, the way we think about worship, the way we think about encouraging others, the way we think about marriage, parenting, spiritual warfare. This is a practical section of the book of Ephesians. So again, today we're in chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verse 26 through verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Father, we know that your word does endure forever, but Lord, we are so prone to misunderstand your word, to import our own ideas into your word. Lord, we want to export your ideas out of this passage, not import our ideas into it. We pray that you would guide us by your spirit as we do this together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, this is a, a practical section of Ephesians. But it's important to remember the, the overall structure of Ephesians. And I'm going to come back to this in almost every sermon because it's so central. Because Ephesians was written to be heard, to be read to a congregation in the first century. And it was written to be read in one sitting from beginning to end. It doesn't take long. I would encourage you to do that in your own personal devotions. Sit down sometime and just read straight through the book of Ephesians. Probably take about 25 minutes, depending on your reading speed, if not a shorter amount of time. And as you read through it, you'll see this very clear structure that for the first three chapters, Paul is dealing with what God has done, God's plan of salvation in Christ that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we have been made alive together with Christ, that we are saved by grace. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith, 
This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That salvation does not come through our works, through our good deeds, through our effort. But then as we move into chapter 4, Paul begins to apply his biblical doctrine. And so that's where we are going through these very practical aspects of Christian living. But I have to emphasize that every week because what could happen is as we walk through this slowly together is that I'll, I'll do a sermon on truth as we did yesterday or today we'll be looking at anger and work and you might say, well, this is how I, I'm a good person. This is how I earn God's favor. And that would be missing the very central point of the Apostle Paul. That what Paul wants us to see is that the gospel, the grace of God, has implications for our lives. That as the gospel moves into a human heart, that it should change every aspect of our life. So as I said, today we're going to be looking at two of those aspects, our view of anger and then our view of work. So let's start with that first area of gospel transformation. But the gospel transforms our view of anger. The gospel transforms our view of anger. Look at verse 26 in your Bible. Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And so as you look at that, you see a very surprising command. You would expect him to say, don't be angry. If the gospel is at work in your heart, don't be angry. And actually, later in this chapter, in verse 31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. But yet here he says, be angry. It's a command. He's not saying that we should be angry all of the time. But what he's saying is that as moral creatures, that God gave us the emotion of anger as a natural response to the sight of true injustice and evil in the world. That you could think of our emotions as a thermometer in a sense, that it registers the heat in the room and it should respond appropriately to what is going on. And that's how we should think about anger, that at the sight of injustice, we shouldn't be cold, we shouldn't be indifferent, we shouldn't be unfeeling. And so Paul can actually give us the command, be angry. And you see this played out in the perfect humanity of Jesus. If you want to know what perfect, sinless, well-balanced emotion looks like, you read the, the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And in John 2, remember, Jesus goes into the temple. He sees the, the money changers exploiting the poor. 
He sees God's house being dishonored. And Jesus is filled with righteous anger, righteous indignation, which drives him to action in the moment, driving the money changers out of the temple. Or if you have your Bible, turn to Mark 3. Mark chapter 3. Here's another picture of Jesus expressing righteous anger. Mark 3, verse 1. It says, Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, the place of worship, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the religious leaders, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, to the crowd, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So there you see Jesus confronting the reality of human brokenness. Somebody with a a withered hand. This is a result of the fall. It's not the way the world should be. It's the result of living in a, a sinful world. Sin came into the world. Death came into the world. Jesus is grieved by the reality of human suffering. But then he also knows that the religious leaders, those who should have been shepherding the flock of Israel, are watching him to see if he will heal the man on the Sabbath so that they can accuse him. And so Jesus says, is it right for me to heal him? They're silent. And then it says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, that he had this righteous anger at their cold indifference to the suffering of this man. It says that he was grieved at their hardness of heart, that it was the the natural response of a well-balanced human to the sight of evil and injustice. Of course, we should react that way as well that it's easy to become desensitized to evil, to be desensitized to injustice where we feel nothing, we're not moved in any way in our heart. And that's why in our text in Ephesians, Paul says, be angry. But of course, at the same time, we are sinful people. We don't have the sinless humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, though anger can be the right response of a moral creature to the sight of injustice, it is extremely dangerous. And that's why if you turn back to Ephesians 4, look again at verse 26, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. That anger, even true righteous indignation at the sight of evil, 
can so easily lead into sin. It can lead to to bitterness. It can lead to harsh words. It can lead to vengeance. It can lead to us taking matters into our own hands. It can even lead to, to violence, to abuse, to great evil in the world that flows out of anger. And so Paul is saying, be angry and do not sin. Know how dangerous anger is as an emotion. But then thankfully, he gives us a hint of how to be angry and to not sin. He says, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That righteous anger at its best is a gift that should drive us to action in the moment. Sometimes that action comes in the form of stepping in in defense of the vulnerable. If you see somebody hurting your child, you're not going to just sit and reflect and think about it and try to meditate in your heart upon what you should do, but you're going to take decisive action in the moment out of the sense of the wrong to defend your child. Or if you see an elderly woman being beat up on the street by a group of teenagers, you're struck by the injustice. And even if you can't step in yourself, it drives you immediately without thinking to call 911. It drives you to action. So it's this temporary burst of moral response to injustice. But yet, most of the time, when we see injustice and evil, there's absolutely nothing that we can do. There's no decisive action in the moment. So the only thing we can do is turn to the Lord in prayer. And whenever we struggle with with anger, whenever anger floods into our, our minds and our hearts, prayer should be the response flowing out of that anger to say, Lord, justice belongs to you. Vengeance belongs to you. You are the one who is in control. You are the one who is sovereign. You are the one who is powerful. I am not in control. I cannot control the situation. Lord, you take complete control. I give it up to you. That this this anger at the injustice is too strong of an emotion for me to bear within myself. That if I hold on to this, I know that it will overflow into into violence or into harsh words or into bitterness within my heart. I can't hold it. I have to give it up to you, Lord. You take it. That's what we see in the Psalms so often, where you can sense the, the heartbreak of the psalmist pouring out his heart to the Lord with a sense of injustice at evil. And we can do that knowing that God is a God it says in scripture, who feels indignation every day. That God is a God of justice who who is filled with wrath, the Bible says, against sin and evil and injustice. And so we can give it up to the Lord, saying, Lord, you take it. And that's why he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Get to the place where you're not going to go to bed angry. 
And then he also says, give no opportunity to the devil. That if you try to hold on to your anger, it gives an opportunity for Satan to step in and to twist that anger, even righteous anger, into sin or bitterness or rebellion in some way. Just as a, as a side note, though, I do want to say that this command to be angry and to not sin is never an excuse for us to vent anger at others. I, I knew someone once who would get extremely angry at his wife, um, and he would justify his anger through this text, saying, well, the Bible says I should be angry. And so I can be angry and vent rage, and it's not sinful, it's not wrong, because I can be angry and not sin. I'm angry, but I'm not sinning. And I think that we have to be very careful with that kind of reasoning. Because that's exactly what Paul, I think, is trying to avoid, as I said later on in this text, when he tells us to put away wrath and clamor and anger, that there is no biblical justification for a sinful anger or rage at another person from this text. Because remember I said that this is a, an area of gospel transformation. I said that the gospel transforms our view of anger. How is it that the gospel transforms our anger? Well, I think that anger often goes off the rails when it comes from a heart of selfishness or a heart of pride or a, a sense of entitlement. Something happens and you say, I would never have done that. Or somebody does something to you and you say, I can't believe that they would do that to me. I don't deserve this. Or sometimes it can be anger at God himself. God, how could you allow me to suffer? How could you bring this into my life? But the gospel says that we are part of the problem. That we are sinful. That we are people who perpetrate injustice in the world. And so when we see injustice, we're not excluding ourselves as if we are apart from the evil of this world. But we start with, with a posture of humility. Yes, being able to grieve at the reality of evil, but then also recognizing our own hearts, the, the depth of sin that is within us, that we are rightly, through our sin, under the wrath of God. That God turns away his wrath through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, showing mercy to us, abiding mercy. And that's why Calvin, in his commentary on this text, tells us that we comply with this injunction to be angry and not sin if the object of our anger are sought not in others, but in ourselves. That we're saying, where, where can I look at my own sin, examine my own heart? if we pour out our indignation against our own faults. With respect to others, we ought to be angry not at their persons, but at their faults. That's Calvin's way of saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. He says, nor ought we to be excited to anger by private offenses. 
In other words, it's not that somebody does something to you and then you have an excuse to vent anger. He says, but it's not private offenses, but by zeal for the glory of the Lord. That's our driving force. Zeal for the glory of the Lord. Driven by the gospel, what God has done for us. So that's the, the first area of gospel transformation, that the gospel transforms our view of anger. But the next, we see that the gospel transforms our view of work. Paul switches topics, as he does several times within this text, within this chapter. And so look at verse 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So here you see another command. It's a negative command. Let the thief no longer steal. So just as last week in verse 25, we, we looked at the ninth commandment, not to lie. This is the eighth commandment, not to steal. Not to take something that doesn't belong to us. And of course, on the surface, that seems clear. And this is one where we can easily shield ourselves from any guilt. You could say, I've never embezzled money. I've never committed armed robbery. We think of the most flagrant forms of theft or taking what doesn't belong to us. But you could think of more subtle examples that Jesus says that we should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, that we are commanded in Scripture to pay our taxes because Ultimately, our money doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Caesar. And so we need to render to God. But then we can so easily not pay taxes on cash that we get, taking from Caesar what is Caesar's. Or you could think of how so many people stretch their expense reports. Actually, I think it was Mark that, that told me that, that one of the most common forms of theft is, is basically people exaggerating on business trips of how much tip did they give or how much did they actually spend. And so it's, it seems subtle, but people pad their pockets, take what doesn't belong to them. You can think of stealing time from your employer when you should be working. You can think of other subtle forms of even in business where people will price gouge or predatory lending. There are so many ways that we're, we're tempted to take what doesn't belong to us to pad our own pockets. But Paul is saying, as those who are, are transformed by the gospel, let the thief no longer steal. That's the negative side. But then he gives us a positive side of the command. He says, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so the alternative to stealing for Paul is work. He says, work with your own hands. And in the Bible, work is a gift. Sometimes we think of work as as a burden, something that we have to do. But you remember that God could have created the world in one moment, but that God chose to create the world in six days and then to rest on the seventh. And that God was establishing a pattern of work and of rest for us. And then in the fourth commandment, it says, six days you shall labor and do all of your work, and that the seventh day then is the day of rest, to set aside work for the worship of God. And we forget sometimes that within the the fourth commandment is not only a command to rest one day in seven, but a command to work six days out of seven. That there is an implicit command to work within the Ten Commandments. And that's because work is a gift that God commanded Adam and Eve to work even before the fall into sin. Out of work comes so much dignity, so much joy in using our gifts to serve others. I've heard people talk about how ministries that that support the the homeless or those in need, that, that there's often better results when there is an emphasis on work, equipping people for work, training people for work, this the sense of dignity that comes as people are built up to be able to use their gifts to work. You can, so you, you can think of all the different kinds of work, the work of a student or the work of an employee or the work of an employer or the work of a full-time parent or full-time caregiver. Then some of you may say, well, I'm retired, so I don't have to, to work. But Paul's not saying here that we have to necessarily work for money, but yet that pattern of work and rest is part of our design. It's how we flourish. That even for somebody who's retired, there should be a sense of how can I use my gifts and my skills and my talents to bless those around me? Could be caring for grandchildren. It could be volunteering in some way. It could be serving at your church or serving your neighbors. There are so many ways for even somebody who is retired to work, to serve, to use their gifts, to add value into the world. That's what we're called to. But then you might say, well, why? Why do we work? What is the purpose of work? And Paul helps us out there as well. He says that the thief should no longer steal, rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Then he gives us the purpose so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And I love how that cuts through the worst stereotypes of both communism and capitalism. That in the the stereotype of communism, you would say that that you're Stealing from the rich to have something yourself. Or in the the stereotype of capitalism, you're greedy and working hard all the time to build more yourself without any concern for the poor. But then you see this third path here from Paul, where he's saying that we, yes, we are to work, 
do good work with our own hands, not to take what doesn't belong to us. But then the purpose is not to build our own Tower of Babel, not to build our own empire, not to have more for ourselves and our own gratification. But he says we work in order to have something to share, that we work with generosity in view, that the whole purpose of work is sharing with others around us. Maybe some of you are familiar with the old story, The Little Red Hen. Maybe you read that story to your kids. You remember how the story goes. I won't walk through the entire story. Uh, but the, the gist of it is that there's the little red hen on the farm, and she has some wheat to plant. So she goes to the other animals, and she says, Will you help me plant the wheat? Not I, says the sheep. Not I, says the pig. Not I, says the duck. And then it continues down the path. Will you help me harvest the wheat? Not I, says all the animals. And will you help me grind the wheat? Not I, says all the animals. Will you help me knead the bread? Not I, says all the animals. Will you help me bake the bread? Not I. And then finally, at the very end, she says, who will help me eat this bread? And all the animals say, I will. And she says, no, I will eat it myself. But I wonder how the Apostle Paul would advise the little red hen. That he would say, yes, little red hen, you were right to work hard, to use your feathers to work. But yet, what is the, the purpose of work? So that you could have it all for yourself? That he would, he would come to the little red hen and would say, doing honest work with your own feathers so that you can have something to share with anyone in need. And this is, again, where we see the, the gospel dynamic. Remember I said that this is gospel transformation, and it's the gospel that transforms our anger where we recognize that we ourselves are sinful. And it is also the gospel that transforms our view of work and generosity. Because we recognize that spiritually speaking, we were like the other animals in the barnyard. That we were the ones who have not done the right thing. And in a sense, you could think of Jesus as the little red hen. That Jesus is the one who through his perfect life and his sacrificial death prepares the, the bread of salvation. That's even what we see symbolized and sealed for us here. This bread, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. But is it something that we worked for? Is it something that we accomplished in and of ourselves? The Bible says no, that heaven is a free gift. That it's not earned or deserved. That we can't save ourselves. That if it was a matter of pure justice, of the amount of effort that we had put in, we deserve absolutely nothing. But that what God does is he comes to us as unworthy people and he shares the bounty of his life, his death, his resurrection. It says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, that for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty 
might become rich, this spiritual richness that comes in Christ. And so when you experience the grace of God in your life, when you're brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, when you receive everything from Jesus, it destroys the attitude of stealing. You say, I don't need to steal. I have everything that I need in Jesus. I don't need to take what doesn't belong to me. You're driven to work. Yes, Lord, I want to work. I want to use my gifts and my talents as long as I'm on this earth to serve you, to add value into the world. But then it also undercuts the sense of I'm working to build myself up, to have for myself because I've received everything. And so then the call is to work in order to give this gospel transformation coming by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as those who have nothing, who are nothing, yet we're loved by you from all eternity. You planned our redemption, not because we had volunteered to help, not because we have been doing the right things our whole life, but you come to us as unworthy, that you give us everything, you give us yourself, that you give us the bread of salvation, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we desperately need that. Let us take hold of Jesus today, of his life, his death, his resurrection. And Lord, I I pray that you would transform our anger. Yes, give us the natural response of moral creatures to evil. Don't let us be cold or indifferent, but also let us be humble. Let us see our own sin. Let us see the danger of our hearts, the deceitfulness of our hearts. Lord, if any here are holding on to anger or bitterness, I pray that you would take it, that they could give it up to you. Lord, if any here are are struggling to find joy in work, give them the gospel vision of their work, working for you working for generosity. I pray that we could be a church of generous people that work in order that we might share with those in need. Lord, we desperately need you. So we pray this in Jesus' name.